Hello and welcome to Black, Brown, and Bilingue, where our mission is to unite the black and brown communities through education, storytelling, and community engagement. The vision of Black, Brown, and Bilingue is to be part of creating a world in which Black and Brown identities are affirmed, bilingualism and biculturalism are nurtured, and equity is the driving force behind all that we do. Thank you for joining us again today. I am Lisette Jacobson, and I am one of your hosts. And I'm Maurice McDavid. I'm your other host. Okay. All right. So today we have... Jordan Lanfair, who is a passionate educational activist and a self-avowed nerd. After teaching middle school and high school English for nine years, he transitioned to working for Golden Apple Foundation, where he supports undergrads who want to enter the teaching profession, which is such important work. He has had his views and work shared in numerous publications and continues to connect underserved communities with resources, high quality educators, and opportunities for social and political engagement. He is a proud alumni of Kenwood Academy. I actually have a summer SI there and Knox College. Welcome, Jordan. It is so good to have you here with us. And you know what? It's so crazy because what a small world that like the three of us somehow were connected. It's super random. So, and it's funny because like once we finally get into the space and it was Kismet where it was like, wait, you know Lisa? It's like, yeah, I know Lisa. It was like, wait, Lisa, you know Maurice? It's like, Maurice is my arch nemesis. And then it was kind of like, how have we never done this? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It's, um, you know, I think about it, um, uh, and Jordan Lissette is always making fun of me because I'm always talking about, you know, when I was in Spain, um, <laughs> you know, because uh, so the study abroad oh, program. You too? You too? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but had I not studied abroad in Spain, I would not have ended up in y'all cohort. Remember, I came because Jordan is actually a year younger mm-hmm. than, than me. So I ended up going through the ed program really with their cohort because I had thrown myself off a semester by going to Spain. Oh, so that. that's how Jordan and I really got a chance. Like we knew one another through ABLE and through a bunch of different things, but we really connected as we started being in classes together. Well, take it a step further. I was so like, actually, if you remember, I used to double and triple up on ed classes. The thing that kept me on that track was I went and studied abroad in Denmark. So that's that's what kept us on track. So we would always have these like deep conversations comparing, you know, uh, when my wife, Samantha and I were in Spain, uh, you know, we would... And so it's like, yeah, well, when I was in Denmark by myself, it's like, oh, you went to Denmark by yourself. I bet you wish you had uh, (laughs) a... Oh, God, that sounds just like him. Let me tell you. So the other day, side note, because he's always coming for me. And I think because I am such an extrovert and I speak my mind and I'm, I'm bold, I'll admit it. But he always comes for me calling me a hater. And I'm like, hold up. This is coming from a man who I was getting on and I said, hey, Maurice, you got to cut back on some of these other uh, things, projects that you're taking on because there's so much stuff coming up with the podcast. And I said, you know, scale back and focus. And, you know, straight faced, he said, I know it's just so hard because I'm just so good and it's hard to determine what should not have my presence. (laughs) Like which project should not have my presence? And I said, Maurice, if if we were in a room and just seeing us interacting, I think people would maybe question my humility when in reality, Maurice is like the king of humble brag. So the thing is, <laughs> Maurice has always been like that. And uh, you know, I, I will say nice things about him, but you can't tell him I said them. Even from our program, Maurice has always come incredibly prepared, incredibly dedicated to his community. So there is an element of that, right? And we can talk about the fact that like being a handful of black educators and in our program where we had to stand out, um, that there is some like, I don't know what shouldn't get my attention. And being at a small liberalized college, you can put your hands in everything. Um, And so sometimes you do have to pull back. That said, no matter how hard you think that you have ever gone at Maurice, you have never gone hard enough. 
And case in point, before we dive in, one of our favorite moments, this, this actually got us in trouble. And it was hard to get in trouble at Knox, but so someone's doing a demo lesson. You know how teachers do their little demo lessons, everything. And they're like, I want you to pretend to be middle schoolers. Maurice and I know each other. Other people in the class are our friends. They know us. They're like, are you sure that's what you want? Very blanket question. Said, yeah, I'm practicing my classroom management and all that. Okay, great. Passes out candy to everybody in the classroom. Says, okay, students, don't eat your candy. What do I do? I reach over and I grab more Reese's and I start eating it. She's like, well, Jordan, I said, don't eat your candy. I said, I didn't eat my candy. I ate more Reese's candy because he's fat. And didn't. <laughs> 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 through, through the whole lesson. And so it was right there that like, <laughs> When we talk about like making spaces our own, all of the black and brown folk are just like dying because they ask multiple times, are you sure that's what you want? Do you want us to move? Are you sure? Like, yeah, I got it. Are you ready? Are you ready? But so whenever some of our friends would get up and teach their demo lesson, they're like, hmm, who's going to be my special helper today? Maurice, why don't you come sit at the front of the room and Jordan, why don't you go sit in the corner back there and you can have a special helper. So like they would just master it, but we would just go. Tom Fullery. Well, and here's, and here's the thing too. And it's like, you know, I like to keep Maurice humble, but I have told him time and time again that he, and he has even told me time and time again that he just has natural gifts. Okay. Um, and, you know, part of our conversation is like, Maurice, if you just prioritized and weren't stretching yourself so thin, you would be so like much more great. And I think if you like picked one thing and to really take off on, you know, it'd be a different story. But he has been able to get by on just his natural talent and charisma. And I think at a certain point, he's going to peak. And if it doesn't, if he's not disciplined, that eventually someone else who may not have as much natural talent, but has much more discipline will rise above. Like Michael Jordan is Michael Jordan because yes, he has some talents, but he was also very disciplined. But I'll say this, and I think this about both of y'all, is that the worst thing in the world? Because that person is able to rise up because you opened so many doors. Sometimes it takes a person that like- is willing to stretch themselves a bit thinner to mm-hmm. get into places that we haven't been, to open doors that we haven't seen. I mean, mm-hmm. like we talk about the greatness of Michael Jordan and we're not gonna get into this debate, but Michael changed the game to the point that people had to figure out new ways of being. And, and that's what I'm trying to do in my up, Well, but it opened up doors for people that otherwise might not have seen themselves, right? Like mm-hmm. LeBron gets to be LeBron because there was a blueprint. Kobe got to be Kobe because there was a blueprint. Yes. And once they understood that, they're like, okay, here's how I can change it. Here's what a superstar looks like. Here's what an athlete looks like. Um, here's what somebody who actually, you know, cares about them kids. Mm-hmm. You know, we know that, uh, you know, MJ may not care about them kids. <laughs> well, and same thing with like Patrick Mahomes, right? He came in, had a different style of playing, but I think people, other teams have like realized like what the blueprint is, right? And so they well, were like, to- maybe less count, uh, Pat Mahomes and more Lamar Jackson, right? Like you have people flat dog in my man, Cam Newton, right? Like we got Lamar, we got Cam and Cam got talked about dirty. Mm -hmm. Like, but it's that idea of a a black quarterback. And I mean, like we can go all the way back to like Warren Moon and stuff, but they're asking questions. Are black quarterbacks smart enough? Smart enough. Oh, yes. Even when they can blow, they could blow the wonder look out. They could have been four, but are they smart enough to do it? Are they, you know, are people going to listen to them and all this type of stuff? And so we've always had this idea of what does a a quarterback look like? What does an athlete look like? Mm -hmm. And I think we apply that same thing to what does an advocate look like? What does a teacher look like? And so that's why spaces like this and people who open up those doors are so phenomenal because for a long time, we wouldn't go into teaching because what did a teacher look like? We didn't be ourselves. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. So, sorry, Maurice. I I do want to jump in here because... You know, as I said in the introduction, you went to Kenwood Academy. Oh, yeah. And I can't help but think R. Kelly. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> but Okay. All right. I'm, I'm going to give you some full disclosure. 
And when that Surviving R. Kelly documentary came out, my phone and a bunch of other friends' phones blew up when they showed Kenwood because, yeah, we knew R. Kelly was out there. Everybody in High Park knew R. Kelly was out there. There were people who used to, like, duck into stores and stuff because they're like, I know whose car that is. Yes, he would give, like, private performances. Like, no, 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 he did that. Yeah, right. And it's funny because I had a summer institute at Kenwood. And um, even the students who probably, I'm trying to think, like, maybe he had some hits out. Yeah, he probably had, like, uh, Step in the Name of Love by then. Um, but they were, they would, they would talk about it. It's like they would hear the stories. And so it's wild. But I know kind of like the demographics of Kenwood and the demographics at Knox are kind of like opposite. Can you talk about what it was like for you to navigate an environment like Kenwood Academy and then going away to a school like Knox? Oh, man. Okay. So first and foremost, I think anyone who's met anybody from Chicago, like I was playing with some of my friends and I could do this with you. What is a quintessential Chicagoan question that you've been asked? No, man, like from a Chicagoan. Oh, from a Chicagoan. <laughs> like when they meet you, if you say you're from Chicago, what do we ask? What part? What side? What side? What part? And then what high school did you go to? Because that tells us, like, in a lot of ways, your high school is more important than whatever college you go to eventually. Kenwood is an HBCU, right? Like, that's how we treat it. That's how it feels. Like, and so to go to a PWI, it was so weird because I was used to there's Black folk everywhere. There's Black teachers there's black excellence. The pep rallies are lit. Our football team wasn't good, but we, but like the fights after were real. Okay. Like, <laughs> and I say that because we had a rivalry at Knox. And I think like, I was a part of the wave that like, to their credit, like um, some other older um, black Knox students and more reach the things they were a part of, like getting more of a sand. But when they brought these young from the south side, straight up um, Chicagoans in, we're like, okay, I know what a rivalry is like. You tell me, hey, we got a rivalry with mamas. All right, all right, bet. I know what rivalry means, okay? Showing up in my colors, we loud. And if they say something, we seeing them, okay? They're like, be loud, be proud, be positive. Like, I don't know what that means. Um, <laughs> but it was this weird sense of, and like for my first year, I honestly, I, I lost myself um, because I think there's this weird thing that happens when you go to a PWI and it can happen wherever you're from, but you, you, you lose some of that firm footing. Um, mm. And so even to make it to some really prestigious PWIs, because like I'll give Knox its due now. Like I, I was a hater for a long time for, uh, for good reason, but Sometimes people treat success like you're no longer a person of color. You just become successful. And they don't see the stars, the scars, the bruises that it takes to get there. Mm -hmm. And so I came to Knox ready to be successful, but I was still black. And so the more I moved up, the more you know I got into fellowships, the more I got into these programs, people around just started looking at like, okay, well, you're being successful. It must be easier. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's not, it's actually harder, right? Like I was on the magazine. That was awesome and terrifying because you're out there for public consumption for alumni, for people. So like you're speaking at events, which is great. But then you try to figure out what's that fine line between my work is opening doors and my work is centering me and tokenism. Oh my goodness. That so, is like an episode we had. I'm sorry, Maurice. And I'll stop after this. That's the episode we had on exceptionalism where you're like thinking that you're being a good representation for your people and you're elevating, you know, breaking stereotypes. But in the end, you're just becoming the exception, not the norm. Mm-hmm. So, so it's interesting, Knox, uh, or, uh, uh, Jordan, because, you know, Knox prided itself, right, on that 40% number, um, right, where it was kind of like, you know, um, people, um, international students 
and students of color made up that other 40%. Um, and, uh, and so thinking about um, what that meant, right, for us who are Black Americans um, on campus, uh, even how we interacted with our, um, our, our Black immigrant brothers and sisters was, it was just, it was all very, very different, you know, to think about that. And of course, I had a different experience coming from DeKalb which was already a PWI, you know what I'm saying? So I just went like from one PWI to another PWI and, and it was what it was. But what I will say is, is I think it was really interesting to come in and then all of a sudden interact. Like Jordan and I are both students at Knox now and he's from Chicago and I'm from DeKalb, but we're both at Knox. And what does that mean? You know, so I, I, I think that was an interesting piece too. Um, you know, as you kind of re reflect back on that, um, you know, and the different folk that you met, you know, I'm thinking of our boy Dre who was from Macomb, yep, you know, yep. but then also, you know, somebody like Joyce who was from Nairobi. Um, any lessons that you can pull out of that, you know, just in terms of also how you interacted with black people from these various backgrounds? I think the big thing was we make home wherever we can find it, right? Because when it, so like we may have been in different groups. So like um, a lot of our brothers and sisters of the diaspora would hang out more with iClub or to themselves. We would maybe be more able, uh, like our Latinx family may have been more with Lo Nuestro. But when stuff happened, it was Avengers Assemble, right? Like we found each other. Um, and I think sometimes that's the thing, like, I never felt competition with the people. I felt competition from the institution for the resources. It was never an individual thing, right? Like, as much as me and Maurice are arch nemesis and, like, we'll battle till our dying days until the sun explodes, it's never, I never felt a Jordan versus Maurice or Maurice versus Dre. It was a, hey, we're only going to give five spots for this thing. And, you know, we'd love to give it to someone of color, but knowing the way that some of these programs work, they ain't going to give it to all people of color, even if all of the people of color are more qualified. So that is a competition between us. That's a, who are they going to pick? And then once they get there, how do we make sure that they are as successful as possible? Hey, who do, you, like, who do you need to look at your paper? Who do you need to bounce ideas off of? Are you taking care of yourself? Because the dual sword, I want you to shine for you, but also if you fail, baby, we not going anywhere again. <laughs> that's really different from Kenwood because I never, and I think that's what I got from my high school. I never had it in my mind that I was in competition with other black people. I had it in my mind that if I'm competing, we competing just because it's you and me. And so that element of it was weird in some ways. And of course, like at a greater systemic level, right? Like there's only going to be so many Gates Millennium Scholars and, you know, you have to pimp out your personal pain to get these scholarships sometimes. And everybody wants to, <laughs> like, they want to cry because of how bad your life was, even if Ooh, like, a word, even if like, the way I describe it, like I, I remind people, I grew up with some of my family and friends being drug addicted. I only ever knew love. I never got to touch a gun and not because they weren't around, but because I, I will never forget one of my neighbors told me, if you ever touch that, I'll break your hands. He's like, you need to go somewhere with that. Like when I graduated high school, when I graduated college, like we went back to my old neighborhood and just kicked it and sat on porches. So I only ever knew love. So this idea of being in competition with people who looked like me because they looked like me didn't exist. It was just like, hey, we're going to compete. And if you better, you better. I'm going to be mad, but I'm going to figure out my lane. I'm going to go do my thing. You know, as you were talking, I, I think a lot about when, you know, in our leadership roles, we have to do some hiring. Right. And I remember very vividly that one of my colleagues She's a black woman and she was looking for assistant principals. And in the back of her mind, even though she would have loved 
to have a, another black woman as her assistant principal, she had pause because she felt like the district had pause, right? Like, are they gonna be okay with two black women running this building? Whereas in other schools, there were two white women leading, mm-hmm. right? And so I think that there's some additional systemic things there that like, it's not a competition between, you know, like you said, you and Maurice, it's more like the, the barriers that the system, you know, has in place. What is it? It's Ta-Nehisi Coates' book, We Were Eight Years in Power. What is it? Negro leadership was never the problem. Good Negro leadership was yeah. the problem. Right. If they thought that you would do a bad job, they'll put as much Black administrators, as many Black administrators as they can in the building. Right. 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 Which, but, which, go ahead. I'll go ahead. Let's have finish your no, talk. Go ahead. No, it's um, okay. Uh, so, so you mentioned that. Uh, Jordan, and it made me think of two things um, real quick. I don't know, um, and I don't, you know, we don't need to turn this into a whole conversation about it, but um, uh, Principal Caffelli uh, was uh, tweeting the other day, and he was tweeting about the show Abbott Elementary. And in the show Abbott Elementary, which, by the way, I like, I I'm think of it as entertainment, but his problem with it was this Black principal who was really just inept i mean like right this this image of this black woman principal who was awful at her job and and he was like you know i think that that's dangerous imagery to put out there because it, it kind of speaks to that idea um but i so do I hold on, but i want to talk about i want to talk yeah, about I don't, I don't know if i agree with that no no no, no. so here's i do and don't agree so i have i have a weird feeling in general about teaching shows Flat out. And Abbott Elementary had to win me over. But my problem with teaching shows is we only show teaching shows as comedies. Mm -hmm. And one of the best teaching shows ever, you cannot find anywhere, Boston Public, because it showed you that it can be funny. It can have its highs, but it is gritty. It is real. These teachers are overworked and hard, but we want to make bad teacher we want to make these comedies about education because in some ways it makes us feel better about what teachers are going through because we can say oh well yeah there's either freedom writers and (laughs) bad teacher there's either stand and deliver or you know these people who are drunk on the job and bad at their jobs when the reality is somewhere in the middle and so the way that somebody explained Abbott Elementary to me that finally got me to watch it and get over my thing about teaching shows, because I think that's dangerous. I think if we're only showing teachers as inept and like as a comedy and as a joke, it does serious dangers to the hard work we do. But they told me was it's like the office for black people. And I was like, really? So when I watched it, I'm like, I see it. And it's like with that lens, I'm like, we don't care that Michael Scott is bad at his job. He's an idiot. Exactly. He's an idiot. Yes. We don't care that Michael Scott is terrible at his job because he has some traits that are good, just like that terrible principal. There are some traits there. Okay. There are. Have you watched it in it? Like, have you gotten through all the episodes? Are you Mm -hmm. like up to date? Hey, I think they actually, Ava's my favorite. Um, because, and I like Greg, I like, and I love Barbara. So I, I just love the show, but, um, I think that they're starting to show that other side to the principal that, you know, we're all complex individuals. And I think that, you know, even when we think someone's amazing or great, our heroes are also flawed. Right. And at the end of the day, maybe the teachers see, um, what a disaster Ava is, but do, do the kids necessarily see it, right? When with that step episode, the kids loved what she was doing. Mm-hmm. The kids but have no idea that she's such a disaster. Well, oh, I'm just saying that the kids don't think she's a disaster. They don't, but I also want to push on one thing too. And I get it. Like we want good representation. Also, Abbott Elementary both is and isn't that deep. And I it's hate why do shows that star primarily black and brown cast always have to be that deep? Why do we why do we have to carry the weight of always being the standard bearer of the perfect image? It's because there's so few of those shows out there. If we had Abbott Elementary and other shows that showed like the depth of teaching in schools and then some that were funny and some that were dramas, we wouldn't care. 
because it would just be a great show amidst this backdrop that talks about the complexity, but it's carrying the weight of what people are going to think about an inner city school, which stars black people, which is important because if we had a white savior in Abbott Elementary that was coming in and saying, you know, Ava, I think you need to serve these kids. We've been standing most our lives. Then like we would, people would love it. Yeah, right? you know, like they, they would. I do love the lighthearted nature of it. And you, you were talking earlier about, you know, again, back to that competition and it's the system that really creates that. It's not that inherent. Um, I agree that like, we're also at a point where we are just stuck on the struggle. And like, if you don't have a sad story that's gonna make someone cry and say, here, you deserve some additional resources, you're not gonna move. And I think I'm finally like, we need to move on. Yes, we can acknowledge all of the challenges, all of the struggles, but we also have to just like, keep it moving. I don't know. I'm in a weird space where I, I'm kind of starting to refuse like sharing only the challenges that I went through because it's like everybody went through it. Like if you're a Latina in um, back of the yards neighborhood, all of our stories are pretty much the same. And guess what? I didn't know I was struggling. I did not realize we were poor until I got to like college. And so that is one part of me, but it's not something I lead with anymore. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that, Jordan? Help me unpack. <laughs> it, I don't like when people of color have to bleed in public for other people's learning. Mm -hmm. I think that's incredibly dangerous. Mm -hmm. I also think about a kid out there like me because the conditions that so many of us grew up in haven't changed as much as we want to admit. I'm wary of not sharing my story, but I think I share it differently now. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> because if there's someone in similar circumstances to me going through it, I want them to know that like, yo, I had it, right? Like we, we, we still had all that. We still had all those problems. And this is how I found beauty and meaning in it. But I look at that for the same reason I loved teaching English and, and history. And so one of the things I, I've always lived and died on is history helps us understand where we are <clears throat> in congruence with other people, right? Like history shows us where this moment that we're living in fits on the entire human spectrum. And because so few of our things are new in certain contexts, English helps us understand <clears throat> how those people handle those problems, how they processed and felt it. And <clears throat> to be more inclusive, it's not just English, but like literature, right? Like literature helps us understand how people grappled with the circumstances they were living in. And so to some degree, sharing our story helps other people understand how we grappled with that. Because, and it's at the end of um, black boy, Richard Wright says, and so I wrote, and, you know, I hurled words into that void so that if someone else, even for a moment, you know, would like know that they could fight, they could feel. And so that's why I do it now. I'm no longer giving my story, my bloodied eyes, my like all this for consumption of my pain, but I'm giving it to that kid out there that like, if they see themselves in me, or if I see me in them, they're like, oh, you know, this dude who used to have sleep sandwiches too now has a daughter that doesn't know about that life. Mm. You know, this kid that, you know, had to deal with some of these problems doesn't, you know, isn't replicating those circumstances. And so even if just for a minute, I feel some reprieve. Mm. Yo, uh, beautifully said, Jordan. Um, and, and I will say, you know, I, I think that there's really a whole episode to be had uh, on consumption of pain, right? Because um, that's that's some deep stuff right there. Now, one of the things about you, though, right, is that you you are purposeful about having fun, in, in in all ways, right? But but in some ways in particular, and with this whole idea of competition between you and I, I would say one difference between you and I is that you are a self-avowed nerd. 
And me, I still got that swagger, you know what I'm saying? Even though I listen to NPR and I recognize that that really probably puts me more in the nerd category. Um, But I'm okay with that too. Um, You know, so so Jordan, talk, talk a little bit about, you know, what nerdum looks like in the black community what it has looked like, where it's at now, how it's kind of developed. Um, you know, uh, I, I know that you're doing even some some research that's connected to that. So we'll get to that in a moment, but just kind of more generally, um, nerd them. All right, well, first and foremost, y'all see my, my Harry Potter, my resist t-shirt, my intersectional- <laughs> Oh my goodness, I love that. Yeah, my intersectional Hogwarts resist t-shirt. So <laughs> nerd them is interesting, right? <laughs> because I think about Black when Black Panther came out and Marvel has fanboys and they don't think of Black folks when they talk about the Marvel fanboys. But do you remember how we grabbed hold of Black Panther? And I'll never forget one of the memes that came out around there. It was uh, the Captain Phillips dude. He's like, Black people, now that we got Black Panther, look at me, look at me. We're the captain now, like Marvel is ours now. And so I think like there was this, this amazing shift in nerddom that happened in the black community when we started seeing ourselves, but it's always been there. Like we've always wanted to be there. Like we wanted to go to Hogwarts, right? Like that's why Hogwarts is so black, right? Like we wanted to be in all of these fantasy realms. And I think there's a part of um, high fantasy. There's a part of sci-fi and the exclusion of black people that's still white wish fulfillment. Um, and so now we see the cultivation of Afrofuturism. We see Afropunk. We see the blurred community. We see us doing movie reviews and talking about what it would be like for Black people to be in horror movies. Because like somebody is like, oh, well, your son answered the phone from a serial killer. What my son doing touching the phone? <laughs> First problem right there. <clears throat> right? No good way you ain't supposed to answer the phone if I'm not home. Okay. Yeah. It's like, mama, who calling? Whose name is on it? Mm-mm. Well noted, man. Like, <laughs> Don't answer. <laughs> right. So I think there's been a part of us as a collective community that's always consumed this popular media. And at a basic level, at a friend level, we've talked about, man, that couldn't have been me. Or can you imagine if they had tried that in the hook? Like, and so what we're seeing now is that like we're more comfortable walking in it because of inclusion, and we can say that, but also because we've pushed for it. Right, like there's the capitalism aspect of it where people have realized if you put them in it, they'll buy it. But there's also the, this is ours. Like we are taking this now and we're gonna make it cooler and we're gonna make it more fun and we're gonna be all up in it. Um, And so like, that's been a a, a really joyful transition to see. Oh, you know, I, I love this topic because I'm very passionate about particularly the Chicano, um, portrayal in the media and it's pretty much non-existent or it's always like you know the gangbangers it's like very 90s for me in my mind I feel like whatever the media thinks about Mexican-Americans it's like stuck in the 90s like early 90s when gangbanging was like this big thing and it's the you know ball heads and tatted up and it's like oh so frustrating but I feel like with this nerdum thing and I think it's usually black people who shift that cultural mindset. I think of like, I'm thinking of like Donald Glover, right? Where he was not like what you typically saw. And it took black folks to, you know, infiltrate for lack of a better word, the nerd spaces to make it hip. I don't think had it not, had black people not gotten into that space, I don't think it'd be as popular, even with Latinos, like Latinos, consume a lot of black media we do we just do and so had black people not gotten into that space because i see a lot of young brown kids just all about it but i think it took black folks to get in there first but i think that's because and it's kind of the when, when people said like all lives matter right they forgot that black lives matter actually meant when black lives matter all, all lives matter. matter and it's that kind of idea if we can get nerdum to shift This thing has been diametrically opposed to us existing, or we exist, but we're the orcs, we're the underground elves that are dark-skinned and can't see the sunlight, and we're inherently evil, 
right? Like all of these tropes around high fantasy and Dungeons and Dragons, these monsters that exist solely to be black people in white escapism. If we can get heroes, if we can get in it, then of course there's space for everyone because to let us in would require that they acknowledge fundamental problems in how they do things. But yeah, but I think like that's kind of where we are. Like if there's space for us and there's space for everyone. Um, and I, I think like there have been so many changes, but we still are trying to adopt it as culture. So we've had a bigger push, like um, when is Black Future Month, right? Like as opposed to Black History Month and like Afrofuturism, those things have helped us make it more a part of our culture. And so ingratiating that mm -hmm. to um, Chicana studies, ingratiating that like to even Asian Americans, like we're, we're trying to open a door to what nerddom can mean and not just the typecast that we're getting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, so first off, you referenced Black Panther, and I got to say, like, that movie really, even as, like, a, I don't know, what, what was it, 30 years old or something when it came out, right? Like, it changed, like, like all of a sudden, like, hey, you know, everybody was walking around Wakanda forever. Yeah, and, and I've got, a, uh, I've got a, a nephew named Jabari. Um, and so I was like, I'm in Baku, leader of the Jabari tribe. You know, it really changed. And I think on top of that, you know, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but like, even unfortunately, even within the black community, sometimes our imagery of Africa as a continent, right, is is warped. And so just just powerful, powerful stuff. Um, you know, uh, RIP Chadwick Boseman, man. Um, but uh, I, I definitely think about... Um, Right, like like nerdum, uh, different from like intellectualism, right? Because we we always had black intellectuals. Mm -hmm. So so when when you're saying nerdum, you know, I hear you talking about you know um, high fantasy and sci-fi and and some of those things. You know, I even think about like Star Trek. Um, you know, and really Star Trek was game breaking because they had a black character on there. They had the mm -hmm. first interracial kiss on on cable TV. You know. And again, it came out of sci-fi, this idea that some someday in the future we'll reach a place right. where this won't matter because we're traveling to other planets and we realize literally we're all humans and mm. we're interacting with the people who had like the, you know, like the butt-shaped head. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Oh, I don't remember yeah, what I'm with you. <laughs> but um, so, so you also mentioned Dungeons and Dragons. I still have not been able to get into that, but but um, Lissette, you talked about Donald Glover, and there's an episode of Community where they all go and they're playing like this, you know, spinoff of Dungeons and Dragons, and it is so good. And whenever I watch that episode, particularly Donald Glover's role, I think I could do this. I really want to learn how to play this and make this work. Now, Jordan, I know you do some of that stuff. Talk really? a little bit about what do you do, Jordan? Space. All right, so. Pause. Do you play Magic? Uh, I didn't get into Magic. I used to be mean on the Yu-Gi-Oh cards, though, bro. What about Pokemon? Like, hey, let me tell you. One of the... Okay, <laughs> I got robbed. Okay, when I was... I got robbed for my Yu-Gi-Oh cards. I got robbed at gunpoint for my Yu-Gi-Oh cards. With, so there used That's to be... That's you know don't hit the hood, right? He said, hey, bro, give me that blue eye trick. I will, I will, I will never forget. I because there was a GameStop on 67th Estonia, and they used to sell um, Yu-Gi-Oh cards, and so you could trade in your PlayStation games and stuff like when you didn't want them anymore for store credit, and you could buy Yu-Gi-Oh cards. So I didn't have a bus pass that day, but it was far enough from my house that I could walk it. So call my mom, tell her, like, "Hey, I'm gonna walk to the store." Store was closed, so I'm getting ready to walk home. I got my pocket full of cards, and everything, and when I say like your boy was into Yu-Gi-Oh, had shinies, my limited editions, all of that. And so somebody walked up behind me. And of course, I'm like clocking. I'm looking over my shoulder. I know how to do the things. He was like, hey, man, what you got? And I'm thinking it's like somebody asked for a dollar or whatever. I was like, man, I ain't got none. He was like, nah, bro, what you got? And I'm like, huh? And so then he pulls it out. I was like, I handed over everything I had. 
You lying. I'm, if I'm lying, I'm dying and I'm still did here. They, did they know? Did they know what they were? Like, did that person know? Like, do you think they wanted the Yu-Gi-Oh cards? I don't know. So what I will say too is my collection was worth money and my collection will be worth more now if I had kept it. So I don't know if it was a, I know I could trade these in. I know what they are. But what I'm saying is like, that moment has stuck with me because there's a part of me now as an adult that I'm like, I kind of hope he knew what they were. And <laughs> like me, adult now. Adult Jordan is like, I, I hope he was out there and was like, man, oh, you think you got this, man? Barrel Dragon, folks. <laughs> Do it. Do it. <laughs> I live on. But um, so I do, I DM, so I'm a dungeon master um, and I play Dungeons and Dragons, I run games. And that's actually the core of my dissertation work right now, where I'm looking at the social emotional um, advantages of role-playing games. And so there's all kinds of things. Like when we think about sports, we put kids in sports, whether or not they wanna do it sometimes because we wanna give them a head fit, right? Like we want them to learn persistence and all this you can learn the exact same things playing in a role-playing game. I am playing with one of the best DMs I have ever played with in my life. And we have been playing this campaign for two years. We are coming to the final, like, we're coming to the end game. And saddest part, I don't know if we're going to win. My care, like, I, I have no clue if we're going to win. We have magic items. We have every possible thing. My character can run 135 feet in six seconds. I can climb up wall, all this. And there is a part of me that like, when I look at how amazing my team is, how amazing my party is and all the things that we've learned and how we've had to figure out how to speak to one another and how we've had to figure out how to develop our characters and build them. There is still a vampire Lord that we have to fight in his castle and we can lose. And do you know what that does to me after two years? If we lose, it makes me realize that I can lose. I mean, I'm gonna be heartbroken. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be pissed. I'm gonna curse and everything. But there is that, that thing of we get kids in situations. We get people in situations where what we really want them to learn are those soft skills. And Dungeons and Dragons, everything comes down to the dice. You can build your character as great as you want. You roll a one, you fail. That's it. It's, it's fate, it's chaos. Um, so there's a part of it where you have to focus on how do you plan together? How do you strategize together? And a lot of us are laughing like when we play because we're always talking about, oh, well, I never thought I'd use math again. I have to calculate the hypotenuse of my spells. Do you know how terrible I was at math? I couldn't do the hypotenuse on a dry program, but my DM tells me you have a 120 foot range on guiding bolt. I know guiding bolt can hit them right up there and my archer can shoot them. And it's that synergy. And we have to be able to talk through those things. So there's this part of it where there's escapism and a Dungeons and Dragons had a huge boom during the pandemic. One, because it's easily transferable online. Right. Mm -hmm. But two, how many times have you just come home and you're like, I don't want to deal with any of my problems right now. I don't want to think about another thing that I can't solve. I don't want to think about another person that's been beat by the cops. I don't want to think about another student that I can't help. I want to be somewhere else and not in the suicidal sense of I want to be somewhere else in the I just need to escape. And that's what it gives you. Like, mm -hmm. For three hours every Sunday, I get to escape to a world that is ruled by someone who is incarnate of evil, right? But I've also played in a campaign and I was pretty transparent about what my boundaries are because there's been a, because D&D and other fantasy games have started incorporating more people of color and diverse backgrounds, people are setting up these very clear boundaries. Like there used to be the trope and I know we've seen it in Game of Thrones and other things, <clears throat> sexual assault is character development. Well, that's because you, right, like think about all, like anytime they needed to show a female character's character development in some of these fantasy shows, what happens to her? That used to be a standard, right? Like, how are you going to get them to realize that this character is truly evil? Oh, where they're going to, they're, they're going to sexually assault someone. But you know who you didn't have in a lot of those games? 
you know, who you didn't have writing some of those stories or telling you that's not okay, that now is at the table and saying, we can get that other ways. Mm-hmm. And so one of my best characters prior to this one, uh, we were going to uh, liberate a slave camp. And I messaged my DM, I was like, look, I don't do slavery. I'm not going to, like, we're not going to have that happen. I was like, and the only way I will go into a slave camp is if I get to burn it down at the end. I'm going to be real honest. And he was like, I think we can make that happen. He's like, I, and so what he said was, I can give you all the space to make that happen, which I appreciated because it put the onus on me to tell my party. We're like, and so like we, we role played it. Like I remember I was like, he walks in and he looks around at like all these emaciated people and like people in cages. And so we hunted for keys and we liberated every single person. And then we get attacked by like a giant hybrid mind player dinosaur. And my character ends up dying. Mm. Like true character death, no coming back. But he died hanging off of the side of a dinosaur and distracting people. So all of the folks in the slave camp could run free. And so for me, that's this moment where I'm like, I've always told people when they talk about like slave narratives and stuff, I was like, yo, I love watching slave movies, not because I'm a masochist, but you want to talk about real superheroes to me, man, our ancestors were some of the baddest folks in the world, right? Like, <laughs> this is wild. Like you are watching legit superheroes at times be able to put up with this stuff. And so that gave me that same feeling, even if just for a moment, like I'll never understand what it was like, but to have someone describe how these people look, how people feel like that when they fall out of the cage, you wrap your arms around them and you can feel their rib cages, like you transport yourself there. Wow. And it, it becomes a very do or die situation of what, do you, what are you going to do? That's the number one DM question. This happens. What do you want to do? I have a question. Oh my goodness. So two things. Um, I think it's incredible that you've taken like such a passion of yours and are, writing your dissertation on that what what was like the inspiration to like you know what I'm going to merge this passion of mine with you know SEL and then um I kind of want to this I don't know anything about Dungeons and Dragons but what you're describing reminds me of like the metaverse that Facebook is trying to do and how and even in those spaces um you can't escape you know like slavery and sexual assault, like those, that's been one of the criticisms, right? Like, how are we going to stop those kind of things from happening? And now as I hear you um, describe these campaigns, I'm like, oh, snap, like this is some uncharted territory. And I don't know, we're fully aware of like, oh, this can go left. So I, I think my whole, a big part of my journey is I've been pretty open with my, um, my journey with my depression. Um, and you know, I've got clinical depression. I've got PTSD from some things. And, um, one of the things that, um, somebody recommended to me one day was D and D and there's a growing community of trauma survivors that D and D is therapeutic, man. Like there have been some sexual assault survivors that the DM gives them the chance to be back in that space, except this time they get to kick the crap out of someone who represents their so like and 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 re-own that agency. There are spaces where like, hey, the guards are clearly corrupt. And do you know who town guards are? People of color who may or may not be experiencing brutality. Yeah, they're clearly corrupt. Do what you want to with that, right? Like you can intervene in situations that you normally couldn't in your life. Um, and so I think that role-playing games and DD are a bit different from the metaverse in that they are cooperative storytelling. So the, the, the Dungeon Master helps craft the world and play the characters and has the overarching idea, but the characters really guide the story. Mm-hmm. And so there is the opportunity to assert boundaries. If you don't want a story with sexual assault, completely. But I think what it also lets us do is learn. We can learn in a safe place. We can figure out how to handle some of these things in a place where the stakes are a character, which is still painful. Like if my if my my character dies, I'm going to feel it. I, I've lost one, and it's it, it sucks. But guess what? I'm still alive. Mm-hmm. I'm not brutalized. My character can take things that I can't, so that I don't have to. And so I think that it gives us space 
to practice other skills in an arena where the stakes are incredibly low. Like coping. If we can, I feel like that would help yeah. you cope, right? Like teach you, you know, maybe mm-hmm. some coping when, whenever you experience loss in real life, right? Yeah, there's been a lot of um, positive work with um, people with autism and D&D, helping them learn social skills with people with PTSD, wow. helping them um, reframe traumatic events because it's this world where everything is open to you and you have to practice these skills because like the, the, the common joke is like, you can be a murder hobo, which just means that you go around killing everyone, right? Like that's the thing is like, ah, I'm a murder. But there are consequences to that. There are consequences to how you talk to people in game, like the same, and like, of course the dice still decide, are you super persuasive? Cool. That doesn't mean that like you get out of this unscathed, but maybe you aren't dead there because you try to do something bad you're still stealing from people and stuff so uh, it's a it's a space where you and a group get to develop trust and camaraderie and community and push forward with certain ideals and principles and craft a narrative that you need it it really feels like a tool that could be used in schools right Mm -hmm. i mean it, it feels like something like like maybe we're missing because I'm listening to you. You know, I just spent all day yesterday um, going through this lit lab and talking about producing this narrative. Well, you're talking about character development. Like these, you're yeah. you're talking like common core, common core mm-hmm. state standards, SEL standards, yeah. all of these things that kind of tie into the potential of 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 like here is an engaging way to teach these skills um, that, that you do in this group. So I'm, we- That's we my dream. That's, but that's honestly my dream. When I finish my dissertation, that's really what I wanna do is I want to run clubs and games um, in my free time for students to, to get that down. Because I did, I, I had the joy of like, kind of test running it with some students and stuff. Man, they lost their minds. They have fun because, and they're like, yes. it's really cool because some of the, the toughest kids, when I did like, they didn't want to get into it, but then I started showing them some of the monsters, right? Like, and you know, everybody likes dinosaurs, right? Well, what if I told you that there is um, the version of Godzilla in D&D? And one of the myths about it is that it lives at the core of the earth and that when it wakes up, it, its only job is to cause chaos and mayhem. That's it. And tell some kids that. I was like, do you think you can make something that could kill it? No, I probably. <laughs> so that's, the that's it. That's the challenge. Like yes. sometimes you just put it out there. It's like it's a world with these where these things exist. How are you going to survive in it? And I think for people who've had backgrounds where all we've had to do is survive, one, that challenge is a lot easier. Right, like I know actual pain and trauma, but also like, yeah, but how would I make somebody that would survive under these circumstances? Like, not only could that person like hurt me, homeboy might be a wizard. Yeah. Might imagine. Hey, I think this is such innovative research, Jordan. And I my wheels are turning to Maurice, where I like there are so many possibilities to come out of this. And I definitely can think of just several students who every lunch want to be in the STEM lab eating with the tech teacher. And they also though are some of the students who could really use some social skills, right? And and like, why not use something that they already have a natural disposition to like lean towards to help them develop those skills. And likewise, pulling in kids that we know need help but don't know how to that this could just be another avenue and something else in our toolbox to help our students. Like, hey, kudos to you. I think this is important work. And especially seeing that you're a a Black man doing this research, I think just makes it that much more, um, like, I don't want to say impressive, but like, I think it's going to make it much more powerful because I think it'll broaden the scope, your reach of the people that you could, you know, impact. And that's why it's been important to me, because when we talk about nerddom, similar to, you know, we mentioned earlier, like, what does a teacher look like? What does a nerd look like? Mm-hmm. Like, when we really think about that, that determines the programs we bring to our school. That determines the resources we put into our school. D&D is cheaper than a lot of the programs that people will put into their school that may not have benefits. And I heard that Kenwood has a D&D club. Baby, that made my heart swell. 
because but like think about that literally do you know how much it costs for D? &D? nothing oh nothing. you could run it free you really could all and like you need some dice maybe like that's it oh i got that i could do that exactly budget <laughs> right like if you have ten dollars to get a, a big old dice bag a whole group could play and what you're really just talking about is making a story and getting people invested and so but like for me I want people to see that I play because who are we giving these resources to? Like, who are we saying can have access to this? Who are we saying is gonna be interested in this? Who are the people that are gonna be crafting the, the next great stories? We talk so much about STEM and stuff, but a part of STEM is also sci-fi for me. Mm -hmm. We talk about like theater, high fantasy, like. Lord of the Rings is awesome. I'm curious, how would Lord of the Rings look if Aragorn was Latino? What would it look like if- all, like, He'd have a bald head and tats, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he would, right? Like he, you know, he would, he would walk, he would stroll into there. He's With like- Some dickies and a wife beater, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, like the Odin King stands alone, huh? Like that's, <laughs> but then, but we need that group of children that are seeing themselves in these spaces because that's what moves it forward. It can't always be little white kids get to go through the cupboard and have all these magical adventures and little black kids are stuck at home suffering because we could take that same narrative. I want you to imagine that exact same story, right? Like imagine that we're doing the same like hard knock life, single mom, kid is home alone, except when he goes to his cupboard now, he's in the lion and the witch in the wardrobe. And he goes and he tells all his friends, it's like, yo, we can do, what would that kid do with that accent, right? What would that look like if poor Latinx kids or Latinx girls who are used to being underestimated get to go somewhere and they find out they're the chosen one, right? Like, oh, I'm sorry, sweetheart. The reason your life has been so hard is because actually you're a famous wizard and like you are special. How does that flip the entire story? Because like, what does it mean for us if Harry Potter fought the most dangerous wizard in the world, but homeboy still locks his doors when he sees black people coming down the street? Like that can exist in the same world because the way they've set up the wizarding world, there ain't that many of us. Yeah. So we don't always know what how they would respond. And we want to see ourselves in these spaces and we want to craft those spaces. But if we don't see ourselves, then we're never going to open up programs or spaces or allow teachers to buy books or do those things that will give that wide breath or we're going to say they won't be interested and never give them the chance mm. yo <laughs> it, it is it's it's been phenomenal sir look we're not going to keep you here all day um, we have a tradition here at bbb uh, that we we like to have our guests uh, leave our listeners with one Final word, uh, if there was one thing you absolutely wanted the listeners to walk away with today, um, uh, what, what would that be, Jordan? While you're thinking, can I just say, because I got to bring it back, I don't see how Maurice was ever your nemesis, Jordan. Because <laughs> what you're again. doing, hey, that is so dope. Like what you are doing is so innovative. You know, I will, again, I say nice things about him, but you can't tell him I said them. Where we've gotten has been because we get to pick on each other and pussy each other and do all these, like, we went to the Navajo reservation together and saw things completely differently at some points, but that helped us grow our understanding. Like, we still call each other on different projects. I'm like, I mean, I don't really see it like that, but okay. Like he came and taught, uh, I work for Golden Apple and we do uh, professional development and Maurice came out and taught um, some sessions and then kids asked me what I thought about some of them. They're like, huh, okay, I like this from Mr. McDavid and I like this from you. And like, they get to craft their own thing. But at the core, we still want people to be seen. We still want people. Yes. To and so like, that's your best arch nemesis. It isn't like diametrically opposed where we hate them. It's just like, it's just enough that one day if I'm sitting alone in my office and I see the lights go out and there's a large man standing in the door, I'm just going to say, I knew they'd send you. And I know, <laughs> you know like, that's, that, that's what it is. But so I guess- the, That is the, beautiful. The, I the love to thing, see it. Yeah. 
So the biggest thing I will give to people, and it is, it's something that I mentioned at a recent um, Knox alumni panel, it's something that I'm telling all of my undergraduate scholars that I work with through Golden Apple, it is find your people and hold on to them. And if that means find your people in a fantasy world, if that means find your people at the school you're at, if that means find your people at your job right now, find your people and hold on to them. And not just through the good times, right? Like through when they are falling apart, through when you're falling apart. And if you can't hold that many people, that's okay better you find a handful that you can wrap your arms around and they can wrap your arms around you than feel like you need to have every single person that you encounter a part of your life. Um, because love is revolutionary. Joy is revolutionary. Community is revolutionary. Nerddom is revolutionary. And so when you find your people, craft those spaces for all of those things. Beautifully said, Jordan. And I love to see the dynamic between you and Maurice. And you can tell there's a lot of love. Um, for Black, Brown, and Bilingue, Lisa Jacobson. Maurice McDavid. Muchas gracias for tuning in.